the most requested uh, no cartridge related thing I've ever done uh, and I'm finally back doing it and I couldn't be happier it is the no cartridge book club we are back in it um, sorry for the uh, absence uh, part of it has to do with the birth of my second child uh, part of it more of it has to do with the fact that it's just a lot to do um, you know doing the uh, book club is a lot like teaching a class to uh, you know, like 300 people. Um, none of you ask questions, or some of you do, but I don't tend to answer them very well, so sorry about that. Uh, but it is a lot of prep every week because um, it's pure lecture, but that's okay. Um, I'm happy to be back. I'm figuring out ways to make it work, and um, yeah, no promises on the next one, but hopefully we'll shift into a regular schedule uh, sooner than later. Um, today, though, we're going to actually pick up where we left off. Uh, we finished the first chapter on the commodity. We ended with the commodity fetish. And uh, we are moving on to our second chapter, which is the process of exchange. Now, the process of exchange is really great because um, – really great to come back to as a uh, pickup because it actually covers quite a bit of the things that we've been covering in the past. It's a good way to refresh ourselves. If you haven't listened to one of these before, it's a good place to start. Um Really, this second chapter is a good gloss of the first chapter, if you want to put it that way. Um, if you're reading along in the Ben Fowkes, uh Penguin Edition, it starts on 178, and uh, page numbers will be from there. Um, so the first thing I wanted to touch on was on uh, 178 to 179. Uh, Marx brings up this aspect of exchange that I think probably best uh, describes it, which is that is a personification of commodities. Um, Marx does this a lot, right? Like the, the way that commodities work is that they themselves have to go to market in order to put themselves in, um, in uh, exchange with one another. It's not so much that there is some sort of interpersonal exchange. That's certainly not of interest to Marx. Um, you know, what the various capitalists or sellers or marketers or whatever actually think about these products. What's of interest to him is the sort of mysterious power of these products themselves, um, particularly the values they have innate to themselves uh, or imminent to themselves. As a result, it really is about the products themselves coming to market and being forced into relations with it, with each other. Um, as Marx puts it, the guard, oh, so um, commodities are things and therefore resist, lack the power to resist man. If they are unwilling, he can use force. In other words, he can take possession of them. Um, and this is actually a good thing because commodities cannot themselves go to market and perform exchanges in their own right. They could, this would be a lot easier. They cannot. So, he says, the guardians of the commodities must therefore recognize each other as owners of private property. And so this brings in a juridical relation, which is the contract. We don't get too much into contract talk in here, which is in part because contract, uh, when Marx is writing capital, is a far less loaded term than it is now. Contracting in our current society, particularly in terms of um, precarity uh, and, and gig economy, things like that, 
much, much, much more freighted term. And in fact, it's not wrong. Like the, the sort of exchange, the juridical exchange is still the contract. But Marx doesn't really get into the, the, the weeds on that uh, in the way that, I don't know, probably <laughs> probably we should on this podcast at some point. Um, he goes on to say, it's as the bearers of economic relations, right? Um, he, you know, the, the characters who appear on the economic stage, that's what he calls them, uh, the sellers, the buyers. He says they're merely personifications of economic relations. To say it again, the important characters in this whole story are the commodities themselves. The buyers and sellers are just kind of like masks they wear. Um, you know, or puppets, I guess, is the more is the more kind of uh, uh, useful term. They're kind of little homunculuses who uh, <laughs> come to market and say, uh, "I I have a commodity to sell. Um, I'm I'm speaking. The commodity is speaking through me." Um, and they come into contact via these commodities. So Mark starts off his exchange chapter by saying, effectively, the sellers themselves and the buyers themselves are of no interest to me. The sellers themselves and the buyers themselves are just these sort of standard bearers of the commodities, the sort of like um, homunculus of the commodity because the commodity doesn't have arms, it doesn't have free will, it doesn't have a mouth, it can't exchange itself. So it needs someone to do it. This isn't a psychology text. This is a pure schematic analysis of exchange. The psychology comes later. Right now, we're still dealing with Marx asking a falsely naive question. And it's fine that it's falsely naive. This is just his, his method. Um, but the falsely naive question of, okay, where does all this profit come from? All of that's stemming from that. So if you ever, if you ever lose track of what we're doing in this text and how we're handling it, Keep in mind, we're asking the question of where profit comes from. Where does surplus value come from? Where does value come from in objects? And so we're still working through that schematic right now. And so for Marx, the people themselves, not so important. Okay, so moving on. 179 to 180, there's a really, really big paragraph, and we're going to kind of go through all of it. Marx is talking a little bit about, through this page, uh, the questions of use value and exchange value. And, and one of the things he sort of points out is, a, is kind of a tautology that if you're bringing a thing to market as a seller, right, you're bringing a widget to market as a seller, you're not so interested in its use value anymore. You really only care about its exchange value. At the same point, and we've talked about this in previous episodes, at the same point, all commodities, all widgets, all everything have some sort of use value and exchange value uh, within the market, right? You can't go ahead and sell anything that doesn't have a use to anyone. Um, the corollary of that is if someone buys something, it must be useful to them. So um, take, I don't know, the example, okay, so like people have been making fun of, um, uh, oh man, uh, Jennifer, um, oh no, I forget, oh, Jennifer Lopez. Jennifer Lopez was wearing uh, basically the, the, basically leggings that were jeans with a tiny little belt, like in the Akewood comic uh, with Little Nephew. Um, people were making fun of her for that. And of course, like, yeah, all right, they're ridiculous looking in some ways. Um, she bought them, though, or she has been given them in order to sell them. Uh, it's an advertisement, and people will buy them. What's the use case for them? Well, they're not to keep their legs warm. They're not to sort of, like, provide structure to their pants. They're useful because they are a marker of... Um, cultural capital. They make them look a certain way and uh, signal a certain thing to people around them, right? That's the use value. Anything that's sold has a use value to someone. That's not a cynical thing to say. It's just a true thing to say. Similarly, 
anything in the market has an exchange value, whether that exchange value is like five cents or 500 million cents, right? Like it's not, there's no, there's no question that when something enters the market, even if it is free, that there isn't an exchange value attached as well or an anticipated exchange value. So that's an important thing to remember. However, Marx boils this down by telling us all commodities are non-use values for their owners and use values for their non-owners. Also true, right? In a sort of naive sense, we're sort of we're leaving out investment and stuff for the time being. That'll come in. But in a very basic, naive, vulgar market, um, we're sort of saying anyone who wants to buy something wants to buy it because they have a use for it. Anyone who wants to sell something wants to sell it because they no longer have a use for it or the money they could get is a greater use for it, right? Their exchange puts them in relation with each other as values, the commodities that is, and realizes them as values. So again, this is a very dialectical argument. Um, The two uh, objects, use value and exchange value uh, laden objects are thesis and antithesis in terms of exchange um, they are put into conflict with one another, and in being put into conflict with one another, they produce value. Commodities must be realized as values, then, before they can be realized as use values. To unpack this, what Marx is saying is not terribly complicated. He's just saying that in order to get a use value for a thing, say, the, the, the gene leggings, right, in order to understand the gene leggings' use value, I need to understand what they are sold for, and how they are sold within the market. So what are they in relation to? How much money are they worth? How much, uh, you know, where can I buy them? What's their scarcity? All this stuff that comes out of the question of, okay, two people meet in the market, one is buying, one is selling. All that stuff needs to be on the table first before we understand the full use value of the thing. So like, obviously, a shovel has a use value as a shovel before anyone says anything, right? Like you can show someone a shovel and they'll say, oh, that's for digging. Um, what Marx is saying is, yeah, okay, that is the use value, but within the framework of capitalism exchange, the use value is only ever diagnosed by way of value in the marketplace. So we produce value by putting these things into opposition with one another, and all of a sudden one appears to have exchange value and one appears to have use value, right? Okay. On the other hand... They must stand the test as use values before they can be realized as values. Just like I said, right? You need to have a shovel that can dig in order for it to be sold as a shovel. For the labor expended on them only counts insofar as it is expended in a form which is useful for others. However, only the act of exchange can prove whether that labor is useful for others and its product consequently capable of satisfying the needs of others. So here's the thing, right? Like, um... Uh, if you ever, well, so popular shows, right? Um, uh, Shark Tank, for instance. I don't watch Shark Tank, but obviously there's a there's a pretty easy way to understand Shark Tank within this mo- within this method, right? Uh, or uh, you know something I do listen to, uh, Your Kickstarter sucks. The the podcast with uh, with Jesse Farrar and uh, Mike Hale, uh, great podcast. One of the reasons it's so funny is because a lot of the stuff is not particularly useful that they are making fun of on Kickstarter, right? They often say, what's the use case for this for this uh, item? What, what could possibly be the use case, right? Um, and that's true, right? You need to have some sort of use value for a thing. 
The other thing that's true, though, and, and the thing that's kind of fascinating about Shark Tank and, and any of these investment shows, I think, is that the other side of that coin is you never actually know what people want until you put it in the market, right? So like uh, Fortnite, for instance, the video game Fortnite, skins in Fortnite make them millions of dollars, right? These sort of like Fortnite skins, Fortnite uh, the, the season passes, stuff like that, make them tons of money. The game is freemium, though. It's not – you don't win if you play with skins. You just have them. They look nice. They're fun, right? What could possibly be in a rational way, in a rational thought uh, process, what could possibly be the reason you'd buy it, right? Am I going to spend $10 to look a little different in the game when I can play it myself? No. However, people do, right? So there is a use value to it. Again, probably something to do with status, something to do with X, Y, and Z. There's a million reasons, right? Scarcity. Um, the, the fact of the matter is you can't ever tell if anything's going to have a use value for someone until you put it in exchange. And if you can't tell if it's going to have a use value, then you can't tell if it's going to have a value. And so these things kind of operate in opposition to one another or, or sort of like uh, loosely with one another. But it explains this dynamic by which you can't actually know what's going to be profitable, right? You can't look 10 years in the future and say like, oh, yeah, I guessed every one of these things is going to be profitable. Um, maybe some people can or claim to be able to. By and large, people can't predict this kind of stuff because you can't predict what widgets or objects or commodities are going to be desirable or usable to the, you know, most people. Um, and similarly, you can't tell what people are going to want to pay for regardless of use value, right? You just kind of have to put it out there and hope for the best. That's why, you know, <clears throat> market demographics are, is such like an enormously huge in industry. On 180, we shift. We make a very important shift from bartering to the marketplace. Now, one point of confusion you may have had as we're going through this is the idea that um, two items are, are meeting each other in market. One is use value and one is exchange value. Of course, if they're two commodities, both have use value. We know this, right? Like if I'm trading my shuffle for your pitchfork, shuffles and pitchforks both have use value. Um, the shift from bartering, which would be shuffle for pitchfork or, you know, two chickens for three, um, you know, steaks or whatever, um, that bartering system turns into the market once we get the universe, the object of universal exchange, which is money, right? So money itself, uh, paper money particularly, but money in any way has a use value sort of, uh, as Marx points out a little later with gold, it can fill teeth, it can act as a, a um, it can act as a uh, conductor. There's all sorts of things gold can do. Um, but by and large, it, it serves as an ex a piece of exchange because it has a, a kind of like scarcity. It has a sense of, um, it has a sense of uh, limit, right? There's only a certain amount of gold in the world. Um, it takes labor to dig it up. Uh, there's all sorts of reasons gold works. And, and, and in fact, like I'm going to forget to say this later, but Marx makes a wonderful point in this when he says precious metals are money-related things because they have the character of money-related things. They have a limited amount, they are scarce, and they're hard to get a hold of. Um, it's the same thing with fiat currency, right? If you put um, too many dollars out there so they're not as scarce anymore, you get hyperinflation. If you um, somehow don't make them, if you make them too easy to earn, uh, ostensibly economic economists will tell you, um, it will also cause inflation. I kind of disagree with that one, obviously. Um, and of course, it's the same with Bitcoin, right? Because Bitcoin is, is, a, is a, a throwback to and any sort of crypto is a throwback to the gold standard or the silver standard where there is a 
a central hub of um, rare material that can't be created or destroyed, right? There's only so much gold or so much silver or so much Bitcoin. Um, <clears throat> but the only way we can get into the market is if we find that thing and decide, okay, this is the universal equivalent. This is the commodity that we're going to put its use value primarily to the side, right? We're not going to talk about how maybe you could sew your clothing with a, with a dollar bill or something like that or, you know, use it as a patch or you could um, write a poem on it or something, right? That, that's not the point of dollars primarily, right? We don't worry about their use value. We worry about their exchange value. What can I get for a dollar, right? Not how can I use this dollar. And even if we say how can I use this dollar, it is how can I use it to buy things. Um, at that moment, one piece of the exchange, one piece of the use value, exchange value, uh, uh, turnaround no longer has use value as such, right? Okay. So this turn to the market, right? Uh, Mark says, commodity owners uh, think like Faust. In the beginning was the deed. They have therefore already acted before thinking. The natural laws of the commodity have manifested themselves in the natural instinct of the owners of commodities, they can only bring their commodities into relation as values and therefore as commodities by bringing them into an opposing relation with some one other commodity, which serves as the universal equivalent. And what Marx is saying here, this is like the very central point. Althusser says this about Marx. Louis Althusser says this, that the genius of Marx is not necessarily his analysis, although I would say it probably is. But his argument is that the genius of Marx is that he asks the question that Smith refuses to ask, which is not... Um, you know, what is labor power or what is money or, or something like that. But where does labor power come from? Or where does surplus value come from? Or where does money come from, right? Smith answers some of these questions. But Marx's analysis here is basically saying like, yeah, if you assume capitalism is a natural state of affairs, you act, you, you know, before the act, there was the deed. Um, just like in Faust, you sort of enter into a bargain and the bargain is the bargain. You don't really question it after the fact. In questioning it, though, you realize the universal equivalent wasn't always the universal equivalent. We didn't always agree that money was the thing. Um, you know, you just, uh, Marx goes into this a little bit, and I'm not going to belabor this, but, you know, the idea that you, as we're more and more alienated from our labor, we find things that we're not alienated from or that we can at least, like, use as something between tribes or between people or between, you know, various nation states or city states that counts the same, right? So, that's the moment at which we stop worrying about, okay, I made this pitchfork. I don't know how much time I have to make another pitchfork, but I need a shovel. Uh, what's the what's the sort of like math I can do with my neighbor to figure out like, okay, this shovel is going to cost me one and a half pitchforks of time, right? Once money enters the equation, we stop asking the question of, okay, like well, what's, what's this whole exchange thing about? And we just say, oh, it's money changing hands, right? It's a natural assumption. Now that, that makes it right. But we just assume that that's the case. And he goes on. We've already reached that result by our analysis of the commodity. So listen to the first four episodes and you'll see how we re reached the result of money. But only the action of society can turn a particular commodity into the universal equivalent. The social action of all other commodities therefore sets apart the particular commodity in which they all represent their values. The natural form of this commodity, money, thereby becomes the socially recognized equivalent form. Through the agency of the social process, it becomes the specific, specific social function of the commodity, which has been set apart to be the universal equivalent. It thus becomes money. 
right? So it is about a social agreement. Um, and now, this is kind of like uh, an interesting analysis and uh, something maybe I'm jumping to a little early. So I'm going to take my time and, and, and go through a couple of points before I get there. Um, I do think the social element is very important here. It's something that I didn't quite notice my first time reading through. Um, in fact, like the idea that social processes determine that money is the equivalent form as opposed to natural market pro- market forces is hugely important. It goes against everything that we would understand as a free market approach, right? That people decide what the market is as opposed to the market deciding um, what uh, what you know? How the world works, right? One of the major neoliberal capitalist, really, Fordist. It's 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 even pre-Fordist. It's like it's a very sort of just like you know de rigueur, uh, natural uh, capitalist uh, assumption that if you let the market run free, it's a rational being and it'll make good decisions. What Marx is arguing here is that no, society brings the market into being. If anything, the market's sort of a golem. And we understand its functions if we actually look at the human makers behind it, right? Um, there's a kind of relig- religiosity uh, that Marx delves into. He quotes a um, – well, he quotes Faust for one. Um, but then he, he quotes a, uh, a bit from Revelation. Uh, These have one mind and shall give their power and strength unto the beast, and that no man may bite or, might, might buy or sell save that he had the mark or the name of the beast or the number of his name. I, yeah, I mean, he's, he's, he's being cute. Um, the, the idea here is that money is something of like a mark, right? Like, you know, the idea of being marked by the beast, that's not so different from understanding money as, a, as an exchangeable thing as opposed to a commodity itself. That said, the process of money finding itself as a unique commodity is commensurate and happens at the exact same time as the creation of the commodity form itself. So one thing that Marx is very careful to note in this chapter and something that should not be missed is that as we sort of understand, oh, a commodity is a thing that I bring to market and I exchange because I don't need its use value anymore. I want its exchange value. As that happens instantly at the same time, within the same breath, we have to come up with the money form. You could make an argument, actually, that anything pre-money form does not count as a market. Even a sort of bartering market doesn't count as a market in the sense that you don't have a universal form that you can gauge the market with, right? We understand markets based on, like, well, how many dollars is it worth? I can look and find some sort of equivalency. Without that sort of central equivalent, and Marx says a lot of things were used as equivalents, right? Like slaves were used as equivalents. People used slaves as, as a way of like using, you know, imagining money. Um, people used gold. People used silver. People used shells. We have all these examples of money that was used, right? And no, none of them uh, save slaves, which of course are morally reprehensible. But none of the ones that aren't morally reprehensible are any better or worse than any others. Money's money. That concept, though, has to happen at the same time as the market, right? And vice versa. The market can't happen without money. Money can't happen without the market. Very important. And this is where I'm kind of interested in this. um... Hi, folks. Have you ever had the nagging suspicion that your hairline is retreating on you? Ever get curious about why it suddenly feels so breezy up there? Well, father time comes for us all. And when you think he might be coming for your hair, get him out of there with keeps. Yes, friends, Keeps, a revolutionary new treatment for male pattern baldness and hair loss that, when used at the first signs of balding, allows you to keep 
that beautiful head of hair full and firm. Best of all, you can use Keeps from the comfort of your own home. Simply visit one of their doctors online and have a prescription mailed to the convenience of your own home. Every three months you'll get more, and if you're worried about the price, don't! Keeps uses a generic version of hair loss medicines and passes the savings on to you. A new price for a new you starting at $10 a month. But don't forget to act soon because the key to Keeps is prevention, not regrowth. Save that head of hair, friend, before it goes away, and save it today with a special offer code by going to www.keeps.com slash Hagelbond. That's www.keeps.com slash H-E-G-E-L-B-O-N. Go there and receive your first month free and tell them... Hegelbahn sent you. It just came to me this time around. And so, like, you'll have to bear with me if you haven't read Cloud Levi-Strauss. Uh, Cloud Levi-Strauss is, a, is a, um, uh, an anthropologist uh, cum philosopher. Uh, I find him most interesting as a philosopher. His anthropology is kind of hit or miss, and it's largely because he's, he's writing in the 60s and 70s, which is sort of especially for anthropology uh, quite, a, uh, quite a long time ago. Uh, the field has changed quite a lot, and a lot of older anthropology is very, very fraught, let's say. Um, racist, uh, problematic, however you want to understand it, it has issues, right? Um, Levi-Strauss, though, has this really amazing concept called uh, the, the incest taboo. And so the incest taboo is um, this socially grounding idea, right? Or this idea where, uh, for Levi-Strauss, this is where society comes from. Um, and society comes from the incest taboo because until you have the incest taboo, you have no reason to leave the family unit, right? Until you think, okay, um, incest isn't a good thing and we can't do it. Like we have to, we have to make it completely not okay and not because of its outcomes, not because of anything except that the fact that we just don't do it as a society. And Levi-Strauss says all societies have this taboo. The fact that we don't do it, right, means that we have to leave the family unit. We can't like just stay and marry our mom or marry our sister or marry our dad, right? Like you have to go outside of the family unit to find more partners for procreation and, uh, uh, yeah, procreation and basically like, um, uh, building of your tribe or your family or your people or whatever. Right. Um, and so extending the family by going outside of the close family unit makes for towns. It makes for extended families. It makes for, uh, cultures, it makes for cities, it makes for countries, right? If we didn't have the incest taboo, Levi-Strauss argues, we would not have any of these things because there would be no incentive to do socializing, right? You just stay at home. Similarly for Marx, and this is what I think is so interesting, the money form and the market is really very similar to the incest taboo, which is to say, without the market and the money form, Without the creation of those things, there is no reason really to bring your stuff into like into discussion with people outside of your immediate group, right? So say, you know, the no cartridge uh, listening community, however big it is, has a tribe, right? We're, we're, we're one tribe, we're nomads. Um, and within our tribe, right, we might exchange with each other just to make sure that you 
you know, you have enough food to eat and I have enough things to keep warm. We want to keep ourselves alive because like that's important to us. There's a certain kind of internal cohesion. Um, but that has nothing to do with profit. That has everything to do with a logistical uh, efficiency and, you know, the, the, the kind of like setting apart of supplies so that we have a consistent uh, efficiency of, I don't know, food, drink, whatever, uh, the warmth, shelter. Um, but once you make a market, you suddenly have this incentive to go outside of your tribe, right? We can go talk to the chapos or we can go talk to the street fights or we can go talk to the delete your accounts, right? And say, and the, or the YKSs and say, hey, I have um, this gun that I made and you seem to have a bunch of that gold that we're all using to buy other stuff. Um, I want you to buy this gun for more than I paid to make it. Um, and then I'll have enough gold to buy other things and maybe I can start making you guns and we can start coming up with a business, right? This is literally the economic incest taboo where unless you have a marketplace, there is no reason to make the first jump outside of um, isolation. Now, is it necessary forever in the way that, say, the incest taboo is? And I'm not going to take this opportunity to argue that the incest taboo is a bad thing. But are markets necessary? No. I mean, certainly not. Like, the, the, the way capital will, will unroll? No. But at a certain moment in time, dialectical materialism tells us that, yes, capitalism was necessary as a step forward from a kind of blinkered feudalism. And part of that blinkered feudalism was the fact that people weren't talking to each other. No one was exchanging things, right? Cosmopolitanism is a farce, but in some ways it's kind of a useful farce. Like, it's not a bad thing that I can read a novel translated from the French, right? It's not a revolutionary thing. It's not, you know, saving people's lives, but it's not a bad thing. The next part is figuring out what that next taboo to break is, or in a more properly Hegelian sense, what the next contradiction is to overcome. So moving on from that insight, uh, Marx brings up something of like an algebraic problem for the money form, which I think is kind of interesting. Um, it's on 183. And what he says is, oh, I lost my page. I'll have to give me one second. Um, what Marx says is, is that the universal equivalent form comes and goes with the momentary social context, which call it into existence. It is transiently attached to this or that commodity in alternation. But with the development of exchange, it fixes itself firmly and exclusively onto particular kinds of commodity, i.e. crystallizes out into the money form. And so, like, it's a moment where he kind of starts thinking about the money form as something that has to be standard and vaguely consistent, right? So, and this is where he brings up that you could use slaves, you could use land, you could use this, that, or the other thing. Interesting thing about land, he says, you know, this is a totally bourgeois concept to use land as, as exchange, that anyone could own land. Uh, and it kind of keys into something, like it's sort of an eco-Marxism, it's a start for eco-Marxism. I would imagine this passage is huge for eco-Marxists, um, the, the actual passage being, um, men have often made man himself into the primitive material of money in the shape of the slave, but they have never done this with the land and soil. Such an idea could only arise in a bourgeois society and one which was already well developed. It dates from the last third of the 17th century, and the first attempt to implement the idea on a national scale was made a century later during the French bourgeois revolution. Um, 
we can talk a little bit about that. If people have questions about why he's calling the French Revolution bourgeois, uh, we can totally talk about that. Uh, just you know, email me, uh, nocartridgeaudio at gmail.com or trevor.strunk at gmail.com, and I'll bring it up on the next show. Um, <clears throat> but this obviously is a start for eco-Marxism, right? You can sort of see the, the tendrils, how, where we'd go with it. Um, but it's also a start for Marx's understanding of nature, which is that nature is a free input to capital. Rivers are a free input. You just get to say, yeah, okay, I can use this river. I'm allowed to, right? It's a very interesting concept, but it's also dated because if land can be used as the universal equivalent, as Marx says it is, it has absolutely been used as that and has been privatized to the hilt. Things, nature isn't a private, a, a, um, I'm sorry, a free input anymore. Nature is a privatized thing that you have to pay for. Um, and so, you know, the universal equivalent as land exists. The universal equivalent as money exists. The universal equivalent as stocks exist. The reason for this is because you can fill in the universal equivalent in algebraic functions, um, and you can fill it in as the, um, the, uh, variable. So, uh, six coats equals X, right? That X um, if it's money, if it's land, if it's whatever, you have a formula by which you can understand it. Specifically, like, okay, so, uh, you know, six coats plus, uh, you know, well, you're still kind of basically doing the same thing, right? So you can substitute. Uh, you basically, I'm just, I'm doing math here, knowing the answer is coming up in the next couple of chapters and trying to keep it secret. Um, so you could do something like, okay, six coats, uh, costs $70. Uh, $70 is also what I can get for um, seven spools or seven like yards of, of linen. That's uh, obviously too expensive, but you get the idea. Um, so uh, six coats must be uh, equivalent to seven yards of linen, right? It's algebraic. It's purely a function of um, uh, 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 replacing the variable with a number that you know. And so that's how you come up with the universal equivalent. In some ways, um, the personal quality of the universal equivalent changes, right? Um, as the incest taboo of exchange encourages social diversification, such that we have a world in which we can sell a lot of things as um, money, right? Um, you can offer someone cryptocurrency. You can offer someone a euro. You can offer someone a pound. You can offer someone a dollar. You could offer someone something in exchange for bartering because we all kind of know what things are worth. Um, you can offer time. I, time is absolutely the, the new frontier of um, universal exchange, right? This is, or the universal equivalent, right? This is like absolutely, you know, can you give me three hours? I can give you this much money for that much time. And that is exactly what the gig economy is. It is taking time and making it a universal equivalent. And so universal equivalent changes over time, particularly as we as a society become more amalgamated. Um, I think the last thing I point out about this is you can think about it like a game of Age of Empires or Civilization. You build up your own society first, and then as you sort of move out from there, right, you start encountering others, peaceful or not peaceful, and you have to start changing your tactics. You change what's important. You change what you build. You change what you sort of uh, begin with or function as, or you change your approach. You change what you think is kind of like, I don't know, important in terms of the gameplay. And it all changes because you break out of that initial space 
where you are. Okay, so um, on 184, there's an interesting note that Marx has, just a few more, and then we'll, we'll call it, so probably uh, maybe 10 more minutes of analysis here. Um, he talks a little bit about uh, money as like a, a sort of like shadow on the wall um, in, in the sort of platonic sense. So he says, we're only acquainted with one function of money, namely to serve as the form of appearance of the value of commodities. Remember the form of appearance, we talked about this in the first episode, is this um, way in which uh, you're talking about how something is in the world, but can only speak about it through the way it appears. So like value is unable to be seen in the world, but value takes on the form of appearance of money because we say this is value. What we're saying is sort of a, it's not true. It's not actually value. Um, but it's kind of a nice little hedging, right? Let's say that. Um, that is, is the material in which the magnitudes of their values are socially expressed. Only a material whose every sample possesses the same uniform quantity quality can be an adequate form of appearance of value. That is a material embodiment of abstract and therefore equal human labor. On the other hand, since the difference between magnitudes of value is purely quantitative, the money commodity must be capable of purely quantitative differentiation. It must therefore be divisible at will, and it must also be possible to assemble it again from its component parts. Gold and silver possess these properties by nature. Since all other commodities are merely particular equivalents for money, the latter being their universal equivalent, they relate to money as particular commodities relate to the universal commodity. So what he's saying here is that money has to be equally valuable across the line and divisible into smaller and smaller bits. This is why fiat currency works. Uh, and you can tell this to your libertarian friends if you'd like to. It works because it makes things standardized, right? You're talking about markets and you're talking about fiat currency. You say, I have a dollar. My dollar is worth the same as your dollar. It doesn't matter if my dollar is dirty or ripped or whatever and yours is pristine. They're worth the same. Because we all agree they're worth the same. And we all agree that they can be split into these things. Any amount of money, anything that is money, is brought into, brought into being and brought into universal equivalency by way of cultural consent. Saying, yes, we all agree that this thing has value. Right? That's all Marx is saying. And insofar as we agree that this one thing has value, we agree it has value by comparing it to particular commodities. Right? Well, like, I agree that, that this, uh, this bag of rice is worth $5. Um, if we agree that, then we can make some sort of um, monetary analysis of this other thing, right? It's all this sort of back and forth, shadows and shadows and shadows. We never actually get at value, necessarily. We don't hold it in our hands. But we do get these sort of approximations and forms of appearance that allow us to work and operate without just constantly getting into arguments about what stuff is worth, that's the beauty of money in markets, right? There's a lot of ugliness too, but in understanding how it works, it is a very useful kind of breakthrough, let's say. Okay, so continuing on, the labor theory of value starts to come up a little bit on, <coughs> excuse me, 186. The labor theory of value is something that we need to talk about at some point or another, and, and we'll talk about it a little bit more when we get to surplus value. The labor theory of value is basically this idea, I'm trying to, going to try and say it in a way that doesn't necessitate more than what we've covered, but the labor theory of value is essentially this 
problem, this, this answer to a problem that Marx has, namely, where does value come from? Marx's theory is that value comes from the labor put into producing the object. That's, a, this, this, that's the simplest way of talking about the labor theory of value. Now, there are problems with the labor theory of value. Some are economic in nature, and you'd have to talk to economists to get a very good analysis of them. They're out there. Um, uh, they're good Marxist economists. economists uh, I think uh, maybe up at Buffalo or um, one of the SUNY schools has a lot of good Marxist economists. Um, but, I mean, historically, too. Uh, Ernst Mandel, I think, is, is pretty good at this, um, and, and Bloch as well. Um, <clears throat> however, the real sort of issue with the labor theory of value is that labor doesn't count as much as, as I said before, time, accessibility, um, scarcity, uh, availability, um, stuff like that, right? Like the way that technology has made it so that time and space is sort of truncated um, or sort of dilated, as um, David Harvey likes to say, the labor theory of value becomes much harder to pin down in the way that Marx wants it to be pinned down. That probably means that his understanding of how labor produces value is not right anymore. However, it doesn't mean that the labor theory of value is useless because the labor theory of value introduces two things that are incredibly important and will show up in our next analysis and one thing that we're going to end this chapter with. The first two are surplus value, hugely important and absolutely, absolutely still relevant, and exploitation, labor exploitation, which again, here is meant to be read as a structural analysis as opposed to like, you know, something that I'm fomenting against, like, this is exploitative. It is exploitative. That's not quite the point here, though. <laughs> the point is management exploits labor in order to produce a profit. An exploit here can be understood as, like, a trick in a game or, or a strategy, right? It's an exploit that allows the management to come out as the victors in sort of the profit wars, let's say that way. Now, the thing that comes up at the end of this chapter, though, through the labor theory of value is alienation. And alienation is important because alienation is the first step in Marx's eyes to this sort of marketized world. Um, alienation from one's alienation is generally alienation from the product of your labor, which is to say, if you're making a shovel to dig a hole, uh, you only care about use value. You don't care about exchange value. You don't care about social value. You don't care about cultural value. You want to make a strong shovel so that it doesn't break, so you have to make another shovel, right? You are no, you're not alienated from, your, uh, from the product of your labor. You literally have to use it, right? You're the only person who will. You're alienated when you are making shovels and selling them to people and saying, oh, here's this shovel. I'm selling it to you. I don't use it. Uh, this isn't my thing to use. I just, I just sell it. Um, you know, if you work in retail, this is something that you definitely understand, right? Um, you understand the nature of um, uh, alienation because you sell stuff that you don't care about. You sell things that don't matter to you. Maybe you make them, maybe you don't. But alienation in this sense is, you know, what are you, what are you making with your labor? You're making profits for a company. And that ultimately is the thing. When what you are making is not an object necessarily, but at its ultimate core, just the form of appearance of profit, 
then you're in a world where the universal equivalent matters so, so much. Because how do we judge the profit that we're making and how do companies judge the way or capitalists or however you want to imagine it judge if they're earning a sufficient profit by way of a universal equivalent? And so alienation isn't then just a symptom of but necessary to the process of capitalism. Again, remember what I said before. The commodity is created at the exact same time as the money form is created. The universal equivalent is necessarily connected to the commodity and the commodity to the money form. And so the system by which alienation, the money form, all this stuff is created and connected and sort of like linked in a process is elided by sort of like any number of ideological uh, means, but it's there nonetheless. And as we head into the chapter on exchange, what's important to remember is that what we're breaking down here may not seem, may seem too granular. Let me say that. It's not about it being granular. It's about it being asking a question of something that seems on its face obvious. If you keep that in mind as we go through capital, it's going to make a lot more sense. So thanks, everyone. Tell your friends about this. Um, I'm, I'm planning on making it more regular again. It's been a, a, an overwhelming response, and, and I really want to bring it back. So, uh, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's on my Patreon, patreon.com backslash Hakelbon. You're already there, so you know about it. Um, and, um, yeah, uh, definitely join me next time, hopefully, hopefully next week. If not that, maybe like a week and a half. And, um, yeah, keep reading.